This is episode number 55 with Damon John of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I am your host coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. So I just want to say good morning, good evening, and good night, wherever you are around the world, sharing your earbuds with me, listening to another episode. Uh, Really excited about this episode. Uh, It's with the one and only Damon John. Now, this guy doesn't need an introduction. He is a very famous, very influential entrepreneur in the uh, entrepreneurial scene or space or startup space, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I was lucky enough to grab him for about 15 to 20 minutes. Now, he was actually uh, quite sick, so uh, we had to do a lot of editing for this one. But there was some great gold that came away from it. And, uh, you know, Damon shares, like, his, his journey around FUBU, how he almost lost it all, what he looks for when investing in entrepreneurs and yeah, uh, we've interviewed a few entrepreneurs now from Shark Tank America, and uh, yeah, this one is not to be missed. I'm really, really excited to share this one with you guys, and uh, it's funny, you know, because you know, da- in this episode, Damon shared some things with me that you just don't really think happens when it comes to looking at successful entrepreneurs, because you only see the end product. So... This is a great one for you guys to see the true dark side of entrepreneurship. So if you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. Please do check out the magazine. It's the fruits of our labor. And thank you so much for taking the time. Let's jump in. Can you share with, our, share with us, what was your childhood like? And more specifically, the elements of the early years that drove you to become an entrepreneur? I was raised in um, Hollis, Queens, and my father was from Trinidad, and he was a very hardworking man. And my mother's an African-American, and she's a very hardworking woman. And, you know, every time they would 
come home from work, they would do some other job, you know, build, you know, work on the house and try to try to build the porch in the house or try to go sew some clothes and, you know, get it ready for the weekend when they would go to a, to the market and try to sell them. So I always just, you know, it was in my blood that I just figured you never were idle. You always had to work and you always had to try to try to create some more uh, of an income for yourself, you know? Mm. So you were, you were brought up with the hustle mentality. Absolutely. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about FUBU's origin and idea? How did you get the idea for the company and how did you get the initial growth? Yeah, I mean, the idea from the company came from, you know, when we were out there and we were wearing all these other brands and, you know, the, we started hearing rumors that these designers just really didn't respect or value uh, us as a customer base, meaning, you know, the kids who love hip-hop, the kids who are from the streets, and, um, you know, we started to get frustrated and I would just, you know, constantly hear things, you know, that the people didn't like it. So, you know, we came up with an acronym, you know, FUBU, uh, stood for us, by us. It was, it was four kids who loved this new, this new music called hip hop that came with a, a way to walk, talk and dress a lifestyle. And we decided that, uh, you know, we were going to finally be proud of the people that purchased our clothes and we were going to actually be the same people that made the clothes, and that's, that's how I initially came out with it, and, you know, for quite some time, I would sneak on the video sets, and I would take our shirts, and we only had about 10 shirts, and I would keep putting them on on wrappers, and I would just take the shirts back, and put on another wrapper, and take the shirts back, and we didn't have any money to make, you know, a large quantity of shirts, and then, before you know it, people actually started thinking about this as a huge clothing company, when we literally still had 10 shirts in a basement, you know? Mm, I see. And what what were the factors that, that led you to take FUBU out of the U.S. to the market in 2003 and then you brought it back in in 2010? What what were the factors that, that just made you decide to do that and what have you learned from that process? Well, we didn't, we didn't take it fully out of the U.S. in 2003. What we did, we just stopped pushing it in the, in the way that, you know, we traditionally did with heavy marketing and advertising. Mm. And we kind of we still just made it for all of our celebrity friends and artists and people who were performing. So that's what we did. We just didn't go after the hard push. And the reason why is because it obviously started to slow down because, you know, people had 10 years of FUBU in their closet and, you know, new brands were coming out and, you know, the lifespan of a lot of lines to stay really, really hot for five years. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to cool down. And we started to also heat up with our other brands that we had. So our our uh, brand, such as Coogee, which is, you know, as you know, an Australian brand that we bought out of bankruptcy, Coogee started to to heat up, and we wanted to concentrate our efforts on Coogee domestically, while FUBU, we started to really change the image. And overseas, they they already know FUBU from overseas. It, didn't, it wasn't necessarily uh, oversized in certain countries and, you look at FUBU in Korea, it's, it's more like a skate brand. So we wanted to just really give it a little rest over here. That's, that's why we decided to do that. And then we relaunched in 2010. The launch was okay. It wasn't successful from a monetary standpoint. You wouldn't look at it like, oh, my God, they, they're just everywhere. But it actually started to change people's perception of the brand domestically as well. I see. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned around – you know, FUBU, you, you do a lot of other things now, like Moguls Mobile, Titan. 
I'd like to talk about some of the other projects that you're working on at the moment, especially Titan. You know, Mark Cuban went as, as, as far as calling it snake oil on the show. You know, what, what attracted you to it? Well, you got to understand Mark's position. You know, Mark is um, constantly approached. You know, he obviously owns the NBA team. And Mark is approached every other day. By someone he says they have the magic trick to make his players jump higher, run faster, live longer. So mm-hmm. he's going to say that. And I think that when Patrick, the CEO of Titan, came on, he made a lot of claims that, I mean, he actually can back up. But he's a very, very innocent guy, and he made some claims of, uh, you know, maybe what his personal thoughts were on the product or other people's thoughts, they weren't scientific claims. So... I think that's where the ground that Mark Cuban started to, you know, sort of feel that it, this was absurd. Mm. But where I resonated with, with it from is, I technically don't know how you can you can make all the claims on how uh, an airplane technically works. I have no idea. All I know is it gets me up in the air and it gets me from California to New York in five hours. I'm a pretty simple guy. Titan, it's weighted compression gear. It's eight pounds on the top, eight pounds on the bottom. The medical gels are placed, as you can physically see, where your muscles are. So it moves with your body, unlike the traditional weighted vest out there that the metal bars are just there and it doesn't move with your body. Now, I don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand that if I have 16 extra pounds on me, I have a heavier mass, a heavier point of resistance on me and then if I could do 100 pull-ups with, with 16 extra pounds on me, I most likely can do more pull-ups with the pounds that are off of me. It's just common sense. I don't need to overthink this. So that's what it tries me to do, number one. Number two is I used to wear one of those weighted vests. I wore that to the gym. Two weeks, I used to walk to the gym. I walked about you know a mile to the gym and a mile back with the weighted vest on. And because the, the weight didn't move with my body, Two weeks later, I had a double hernia, and I had to get surgery. Oh, wow. So I understood, and I I resonated with it. And the last but not least is the names that, whether it, it did, I didn't need scientific approval, when the names that Patrick mentioned that about the, the athletes and the people that use the product, I knew that no matter what, after the show was over, after we filmed that I had, you know, my time to do due diligence. And if he was lying about those people, then everything was a lot. But the names that he had, he provided, they were some of the most, uh, you know, the guy who had mobility wad is the, by far the most respected man in CrossFit because I own, I own the Reebok CrossFit gym in New York, which is the largest CrossFit in the world. You know, when he, when he tells me about respected guys like that, and uh, you know, the the Annie Thorin's daughter and Rich, you know, who are the fittest man and fittest woman in the world, when they work out in it, there's nothing else to say after that. These these are the top people in the most you know cult physical fitness you know genre there is, and they wear the product. I knew it was a home run from that point on. Okay, yeah. So a lot of social proof, common sense. Okay. What is it like, like just on that subject around, you know, companies that you've invested in, what's it like to mentor companies that you invest in and, and what have you learned from mentoring these entrepreneurs that can be applied by other aspiring entrepreneurs? It reminds me of the fundamentals of all business. I mean, you know, I sometimes I, I, I 
I mentor them and I learn way more than they do because I learn that money doesn't solve it. Money will come and I learn that, you know, they exercise what I call my power of broke theory. I mean, that's what my new book is because of all these entrepreneurs that none of them have gotten there and have been uh, sustained their position due to having a lot of money. They all have thought outside the box. I learned that this new world of social media is giving a lot of power back to the people and that they're converting these people that follow them into actual sales and you no longer need retail stores the way we needed them in the past. Everything is still always started with a small spark and a small, small following that becomes your biggest ambassadors. And, you know, and then a lot of them, I just really learned, you know, learn when a lot of them had way less than I had when I started. It's still the end of the day, no matter how much this, tech, this technology has, has made the world easier, it's also easier for everybody to have a barrier, you know, for everybody to get into it. So no matter how much technology there, you still have to put in those sleepless hours to become successful. So I learned the fundamentals are just reinforced. It's just a different day and age, you know? Mm. When we talk about entrepreneurship, what has been one of your biggest mistakes as an entrepreneur? My biggest mistake was at first not having any financial intelligence. And I noticed that in a lot of the other entrepreneurs in regards to, you know, not understanding how to use the valuable lesson that money, you know, the money is really a tool and it can either hurt you or help you. And often you'll have a business end or something to make a lot of money and then you won't understand how to manage it. And because you don't have a financial intelligence, you end up hurting yourself. Mm. Can you take us back to your lowest moment that you've had as an entrepreneur? That's like, you know, greatest moment of uncertainty, despair, stress, or sense of failure and, and how you overcame that? Because it is a such a lonely journey at times and, and so up and down. I think the longest moment I had is, you know, Fubu at, uh, I opened it in 1989 and I closed it three times up until 1992 because I ran out of money. Then, got to a certain level, we had $300,000 in orders and I took out a mortgage on my home. Again, financial intelligence, my lack of it was sought to set in and that, you know, six months later I had a, I had a, I had a loan for $125,000 and then all of a sudden, six months later, I looked at $500 in the bank account. And I was a couple of months late on my mortgage, and they were about to take my home, and I was about to lose the entire business, and it was a very dark time. And wow. in one last-ditch effort, we took out an ad in the newspaper looking for strategic partners, and a bunch of partners called me, but three people were real. The rest were loan sharks and things of that nature. And I, I tried to negotiate with them for quite some time, but then it got to the point where the bank was just about to take my house. And um, I kept trying. I kept putting this stuff out there. And one of those partners that we negotiated with, even though they were taking their time, they finally came back to the table because we decided, you know, we were going to walk away from them because they were just taking too long. And it was that was the darkest moment in my life when I decided to shut the door on them and get ready to have the house taken and get ready to have close the business. And then they called back because I guess they – they felt that these guys had such a level of confidence to walk away from them that they must have been on to something. And then that's when things got brighter. Wow. That's an amazing story. I'd like to switch gears and come back to some other companies that you're working on. Let's talk about Moguls Mobile. Where did that idea come from? 
And you've, you recently have announced a pitch competition seeking ideas from college entrepreneurs. What, what sparked this idea? You know, the, the digital devices we're on are getting more and more powerful and we're getting more and more dependent and relying on them. Um, they're doing everything now from, you know, not only contacting our friends that are detaining us, but they're actually paying bills and, uh, you know, acquiring all information and food and car services from them. So with these devices on, you know, most most of the planet has these devices, well, there's going to be things that are going to be needed to, you know, protect these devices or enhance them. And I felt that this was just a natural extension of of things. I mean, my phone is my most valuable asset to some extent, obviously besides my health and my family. But the thing this is this is what allows me to be mobile and not be chained at a desk like we were ten years, twenty years ago in the office until the middle of the night. We are we're out living and working with these things. So I uh I basically created it to enhance that area of people's lives. And uh, you know, the reason why we do this college competition is because we think that you know, the digital natives know what's more needed. I mean, I'm a digital immigrant. These kids are digital natives, and they're born with these cell phones in their hands. Mm. And um, I think they are the sharpest, brightest minds, and we want to give them all an opportunity because, you know, if uh, one of the big boys and girls comes out with a product that's an accessory, you know, the everyday person doesn't get a chance to profit off of that. But we want to give uh, everyday people, you know, a, a way to... Uh, not have to worry about opening up their own company, but coming up with their own idea and concept, being part of my company, but yet making making money as an individual, you know? Mm, yeah, no, I think that's really smart. Let's talk about branding and specifically your method of branding behind, you know, any of your companies, in particular Moguls Mobile. What are your top three components, tactics, strategies that you look to incorporate in building any brand? And can you share us some of these elements and strategies behind Moguls Mobile? Yeah, well, first of all, coming up with something somewhat distinctive where people don't feel like it's a, a me too product. They feel like it's a I have to have it product, have a strong connection to it. Mm. Number one, of course, uh, make sure it's quality as well. And number two, you know, find a, find a good way to communicate that and put it out there in the world where people immediately notice it, which is the actual packaging of the product and or the item. And number two. And number three is find vehicles to distribute it and make sure that people can get it after they've seen it. So there's a lot of products and people that, you know, come up with things and then you can never find it. So don't go ahead and, you know, try to launch an entire huge line of 50 things and, you know, you'll frustrate somebody if they can't find it the first time and they never get a hold of it. So you know, those are my three key components, and that's exactly what we do with Mobile Mobile. So Mobile Mobile, you know, we came out with the first gold uh, protective screen that's actually a mirror. We know that, you know, females, for the most part, want to <laughs> constantly check themselves out and make sure they're on point. Uh, I think the guys need to do that more often as well. Uh, we also came out with, you know, a lot of chargers and things of that nature, but they, they're very stackable. They're very square. They're, they're compact. They can, they can also charge three devices at one time. So that's the, the authenticity of the product. The second aspect is we try to make it very clean, white, gold, and then hopefully my face is uh, recognizable enough in this field. Mm-hmm. And, and not only do we use me, but we're starting to work with some of our influencers to repackage it with them. And the third is we use stuff like uh, 
HSN and, and ways like that to distribute it and get it out immediately so we can fulfill the, the consumer's request. In your opinion, what are the two or three most important qualities, characteristics entrepreneurs today need to succeed? You mentioned financial intelligence. Do you have any more? Sure. They have to have an unwavering drive and desire to succeed. They have to understand that they're going to, they're going to fail way more than they succeed. And they must, they must absolutely love what they do. But the financial, the financial intelligence is going to be part of all around education. So that means that number one, they have to have a drive. They have to never want to, never, never stop. Uh, number two is they have to have an education, financial as well as in the field that they're going into, as well as sales and everything else. And they have to constantly be willing to learn. And then they also have to be in love and absolutely be obsessed with what they do. Mm. Last question. What do you value the most about entrepreneurship and, and your life and, and out of all your achievements of running your own business, what do you value the most? The freedom the freedom to know that the decision you made was is directly responsible for where you are in life. Mm, awesome. All right, well, look, I'll let you go, Damon. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you feel better, and uh, I'll be in touch soon. All right, thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.